This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The auction space is in some states, some of the animals being bought and sold existed in a kind of not a legal gray zone as much as a shifting legal terrain. So a lot of states and provinces in Canada are in the process of revise or well, (laughs) revising their laws would suggest that they have laws that pertain to exotic pets that are being changed. And actually what they're doing is creating laws that pertain to exotic pets, which for the most part, exist in a real legal void at the state and provincial level. So one of my questions was, you know, why are auctions such a popular place to buy and sell these animals in the first place? And after observing at several of these auctions and reading some theory on auctions, I realized that the auctions were performing this legitimizing function. So not only are they places where hundreds and thousands of people can gather and share political resources, sign petitions, hand out bumper stickers and promo materials against animal rights activists and pro-animal ownership. There was also speeches made at these auctions about the need to fight impending animal welfare laws and these sorts of things. And then also there is something about the role of auctions as collectively legitimizing the commodity status of the thing being bought and sold. everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Professor Rosemary Claire Collard. Rosemary is a human geographer and political ecologist, Through her research, she aims to develop political economic explanations for defaunation and extinction. Topically, she primarily studies institutions and practices, including state wildlife management and law, wildlife trade, conservation, rehabilitation and captivity, extraction development in endangered species habitat, and wildlife science and film. Her approach combines primary field research with critical theory especially feminist and post-colonial political economy, environmental justice, 
ecofeminism and animal studies to investigate how colonialism and capitalism have shaped animal life and relations between people and animals, especially wildlife. Rosemary brings this approach to her ongoing research on the global exotic pet trade and to a collaborative research project with Jessica Dempsey at UBC about woodland caribou peering into current and historical political economic structures to try to explain why some populations of woodland caribou, despite receiving the highest legal protections available, will likely become extirpated within a few generations. Another recently completed historical project examines sea otter's position within shifting capitalist social relations in the long lead-up to an aftermath of the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill. With Jesse Arzenault from Concordia University, Rosemary co-directs the Society, Politics, Animals, and Materiality Center. Before coming to SFU, Rosemary was a faculty member in geography at Concordia and held a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Toronto. She completed her PhD and master's in geography at the University of British Columbia and her BA honors in geography and environmental studies on Vancouver Island at the University of Victoria, not far from her hometown of Sook. Professor Collard's most recent book and the book under discussion today is 2020's Animal Traffic, Lively Capital in the Global Exotic Pet Trade, published by Duke University Press. Parrots and snakes, wild cats and monkeys. Exotic pets can now be found everywhere, from skyscraper apartments and fenced suburban backyards to roadside petting zoos. In Animal Traffic, Rosemary Claire Collard investigates the multi-billion dollar global exotic pet trade and the largely hidden processes through which exotic pets are produced and traded as lively capital. Tracking the capture of animals in biosphere reserves in Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize, their exchange at exotic animal auctions in the United States, and the attempted rehabilitation of former exotic pets at a wildlife center in Guatemala, Collard shows how exotic pets are fetishized both as commodities and as objects. Their capture and sale sever their ties to complex socio-ecological networks in ways that make them appear as if they do not have lives of their own. Collard demonstrates that the enclosure of animals in the exotic pet trade is part of a bioeconomic trend in which life is increasingly commodified and objectified under capitalism. Ultimately, she calls for a wildlife politics in which animals are no longer enclosed, retain their autonomy, and can live for the sake of themselves. Welcome, Rosemary, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, training, the focus of your work, and in particular, how you came to learn about the exotic pet trade and write this book. Uh, thanks. Well, um, I'm speaking to you from Souk, uh, the territory of the South Nation, and this is where I grew up on Vancouver Island. That's where I'm from. Um, I'm living here and working remotely right now. Uh, in the non-pandemic time, I live and work in Vancouver at Simon Fraser University in the geography department. Um, I'm trained as a, an economic geographer and a political ecologist. So my work in general studies political economic drivers of extinction and defaunation. And defaunation 
just means the loss of wild animal abundance. So scientists study often the proximate drivers of these trends, like what's directly causing them, like overexploitation or land use change. And my research tries to understand the political economy underlying those proximate drivers. As for the exotic pet trade, which is one of the drivers of extinction and defaunation, um, I became interested in it. I think the seed of the idea actually came a long time before the book came out. In about 2001, I was in China backpacking with some friends and we visited this famous wildlife market called Qingping in Guangzhou. I'm not pro- probably not pronouncing that quite right. but um, And this was before the SARS outbreak, after which time the, the market closed. And when it reopened, it was much smaller. But at the time, it was one of the biggest live wildlife markets in the world. And I remember wandering the aisles just in sort of shock and awe uh, at how many animals were there, wondering, you know, where did they come from? Where were they going? And... So when the opportunity came up to choose my own research project for my PhD, and I I was already an animal geographer at the time, I decided to focus on the exotic pet trade. And I think it's important to note that I very quickly learned that uh, the U.S. actually plays a very outsized and much less studied role in, in that economy. And so I decided to focus my research on flows of animals into the United States. As as the U.S. often does play an outsized <laughs> yeah. role in things, I take it in that animal market, it, it wasn't just sort of domesticated animals that are traditionally used for food, but also more exotic animals that could be kept as pets or put in zoo type arrangements. Was it like that? Yes, it was all kinds of animals, mainly used for food and medicine, but uh, it was, you know, it, it ran the, the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. No, Noah's Ark was in that in that market. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so your book is about the multi-billion-dollar global exotic pet trade. Uh, in my next question, I'm going to ask you about that trade. But before we get there, could you explain to us what an exotic species is? What's the difference between an exotic pet and a normal, quote unquote, normal pet? And why is that difference important? If it's important. Yes, it it is important, really important, kind of at the whole crux of the issue in some ways. So there are kind of two main features that distinguish an exotic pet from a quote-unquote normal pet. The first is that it's not native, so that's where the exotic part comes in. So the home habitat of these animals is in a different country and a different ecosystem. And uh, this is important because it means that you can't just release exotic pets into their these non-native environments. Usually uh, they won't survive. So there are a lot of cases of people uh, illegally releasing exotic pets and those pets just die very quickly or those um, former pets can become invasive species. And the most famous uh, of, of cases here is, of course, the Burmese pythons in the Florida Everglades, which most, most experts agree is a a population that established itself as a result of people dumping their Burmese python pets into the Everglades illegally. So that's the first main feature of an exotic pet, that it's non-native. And then the second is that it's wild, so meaning it is not domesticated. These species are uh, undomesticated animals. So domestication, it's important to 
establish is like a centuries long, even millennia long process of selective breeding animals so that certain bodies and behaviors emerge in those animals that are suited to certain purposes. So suited to human companionship, say, if you're talking about these normal pets. Wild animals haven't undergone this domestication process. Exotic pets are actually often wild caught directly from uncaptive environments or their parents were wild caught. And after only two generations of captivity, exotic pets and other exotic animals can be referred to um, as captive bred. So the descendants of captive born parents are called captive bred animals. But captive bred, as I said, is not the same as domesticated. And this is important because, well, for a couple reasons. Because exotic pets are wild, they must be subject to intense control to keep them captive. So they are enclosed in cages or kept on leashes, and they often have bodily modifications like removed teeth or claws. Um, And then relatedly, second, the other reason why this is important is because it means that these animals are wild means that it's difficult, if not impossible, to provide adequate care for these species in a captive environment. So exotic pets often, as a result, experience severe trauma, even what some experts call post-traumatic stress disorder uh, among parrots. They experience disease, uh, ill health, and, and other emotional and psychological problems. So it's, it's a rough life for uh, a lot of these exotic pets because they are wild and have such specific and, and uh, arguably impossible to replicate uh, needs that would be provided in the wild but are almost impossible or impossible to provide in captivity. Right. I, I previously spoke with Jessica Pierce. She's a bioethicist. She wrote a book called Run, Spot, Run about the ethics of pet keeping. Oh, interesting. And she makes that same point that you sort of have a spectrum of animals that are suitable to be pets. On the on the far, far extreme, you have dogs, which there's a good chance that perhaps dogs are happy with with a good, of course, guardian. Then you have cats, which are mostly happy a, a bit a bit undomesticated still they have they have their own thing going on but but mostly domesticated and she puts at the far far other extreme exotic animals which are non-domesticated and simply are are not suited for any type of situation if you think about an iguana in a a, a, a tw- I don't know what it is, 20 by eight tank or something she would say that is extremely and extremely unsuitable place for that animal. And you see that in their mortalities and and those sorts of things. Yeah. Parrots are another good example um, because they, they live often, you know, hundreds of feet up in the air. And so it's not only the fact that a cage is um, fundamentally impinging on their, their normal way of living, but also it's much damper down at the ground and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of different qualities of a life on the ground that are not suited to them. So they get a lot of lung problems and things from the dampness. There's, you could go on and on the list. Of, you could look at each each animal and, and go over a pretty exhaustive list of why it's not an appropriate pet. Like you have to be a real professional with a lot of training to provide even like just adequate care. Right. I I'm go- I don't want to keep going over these books, but I, I will soon be speaking to Colleen Plum, which is a photographer. She's 
wrote a book or, or has a book of photos called 30 times a minute about elephants and the, the uh, symptoms that we see of their, of their mental illness when they're in captivity. And um, she also, of course, in that book, they make the point that elephants are used to ranging there. I think the average elephant home range ranges between 500 miles and 13,000 miles. Wow. And then when you put them in captivity, they're in a, who knows, probably a container smaller than, than a single acre. So all oh. of these things are, are factors that we should consider when we're talking about exotic animals and especially exotic pets. Yeah, that's that's really uh, heartbreaking to hear. It's really it's also great to hear that you're interviewing all these authors of animal books. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, OK, so let's turn to the exotic pet trade. I'm going to drill down in a moment into the capture and auction phases of the trade, which you devote chapters to. But to begin, could you just paint a high-level portrait of the global exotic pet trade? What are the numbers? Number, And you don't have to give ex- examples, but generally number of animals, how much money is involved, which countries are predominantly responsible, just the general top-level picture. Yeah, at that high level, the numbers are uncertain, but they are staggering. <laughs> so they're uncertain because many countries don't actually keep track of exotic animal imports or, and exports unless they are species whose trade is required to be monitored by international regulation. So the first thing to note is that the numbers are not well established and they're usually um, presented in as ranges. But I will say that experts agree that millions, likely billions of animals a year are being traded in legal and illegal markets. So vast, vast flows of animals circulating around the world, you know, hundreds of thousands as we're speaking right now in circulation. In terms of the internationally regulated, legally traded species, and these are species, uh, it's important to note, whose populations are at risk and are therefore being monitored. A new study found that 11.6 billion of them altogether were traded internationally between 2012 and 2016. So in just that short period, 11.6 billion animals regulated, internationally regulated, and that is like tip of the iceberg because there's a a whole bunch of species who are, whose trade is not internationally regulated that are also being legally traded. But it is important to note that that 11.6 billion is not just animals being traded as exotic pets. It's wild animals being traded for use in scientific research, like tens of thousands of primates per year, a lot of whom are being traded into the U S Speaking of the U.S., like it's if we shift to the U.S. and stick with a kind of high level, the numbers are clear. So the U.S. and the reason I'm talking about it again is because it is widely acknowledged as the top importer of legal and illegally traded exotic pets. So the U.S. legally imports hundreds of millions of live animals a year, and around half of those are ornamental fish. Uh, about 90% are destined for the pet trade. And surprisingly, almost 80% are captured from the wild. So in terms of like, just to give you a sense of which animals are being traded the most, uh, as I said, the biggest swath of animals among those hundreds of millions is fish, then amphibians, then reptiles, then birds, and then mammals. But it is a big, big business. As you said, a multi-billion dollar industry. So the the estimates are that the legal exotic pet trade is worth about 5 billion US annually. 
and the illegal trade, which is, of course, by definition, harder to quantify, um, is part of it's part of a broader black market in wildlife, which are being traded not just as pets, but also as uh, medicine or for other purposes. So that illegal wildlife trade is worth five to 20 billion U.S. And depending on who you talk to, uh, people will say it's the third or fourth largest black market in the world. As far as the countries, I'll just give you a quick sense of the sort of geography of the trade. The top importers, as I said, are the U.S. And then the U.S. is followed by the EU, Japan, China. Some Middle Eastern countries are rising in demand in recent years. And the exporting regions, as you might imagine, are places that are quite uh, biodiversity rich. So Southeast Asia, South and Central America, um, many countries in Africa, and then Eastern Europe as well. So the importers kind of, to some degree, track GDP, and Mm -hmm. the exporters track by richness and biodiversity. Yeah, it's a kind of it's that same in a way a, a familiar story of um, that's gone back and and I do talk in the book a bit about the history of the exotic pet trade and the history of wildlife trade which is very a very colonial story of, you know, colonial powers going to uh, their call like call the colonies and elsewhere and collecting animals to bring back for display in zoos or homes the pattern then was similar to now of uh, wealthy countries importing from biodiversity rich places that are uh, often not financially wealthy. Um, Quick question. And I don't know the answer to this. So I want us to keep, keep our focus on this idea of exotic pets and their lack of compatibility with Mm -hmm. being kept. When I think when people hear the term exotic pets, myself included, the first image that comes to mind is, is that guy, uh, the tiger, the tiger guy on Netflix or Hulu or or wherever that was people like that. But, but you're talking, we're talking billions of animals and many, many of them are fish. If are some of these animals ending up in stores, like in New York, we have Petco. I don't know if you have that where you are, but in these big, big chain pet stores? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was living in Montreal, um, working at Concordia University, I I would go, I thought about adding a chapter on pet shops, actually, because it's this much more mundane, seemingly innocuous site of of consumption. And I would go and visit and there would be, you know, dozens of parrots, especially in cages, but also reptiles and things and snakes, you know, so if you most of us probably know someone who has one of those more innocuous seeming exotic pets. And a lot of people, of course, um, end up with parrots or reptiles or because of, um, because they sort of quote unquote rescued them, got them from someone who couldn't take care of them anymore, which is a very common thing with exotic pets. So it, it's a, it's a very heterogeneous group, exotic animal owners. It includes the tiger kings of the world and like these spectacular cases of, there's been two cases in Canada in the last few years of very like high profile tiger owners being killed by their tigers, mm-hmm. including ironically the, the head of the Ontario Exotic Animals 
Animals Association who was killed by his Siberian tiger. So it includes those people. And then it includes, you know, the millions of people who own exotic birds in the United States. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I I would just say let's keep that in mind. I'm speaking yes. to my I'm speaking to myself and to and to the listener that I think the one danger is you hear this term exotic animals and you're thinking, you know, these are thousands of dollars and these are only the elites or these shady these shady roadside zoos in Florida have them, but this is not the case. These are these are distributed throughout the country and throughout the world at all levels and even to people that we know and to our, our families, perhaps, perhaps in our own home. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that you are making this point because it is really important. It's easy with a topic like this to get kind of distracted by the, the really spectacular stories, but the vast majority of exotic animal ownership and trade is in these much more mundane species. Let's try to, I think we can, we can discuss it when I ask you about the auctions, but Let's try to remember to, to discuss the the prices a little bit because I was I was stunned when I looked over your price charts the mm. the small amount of money it costs to get a big cat for example is astounding yeah. but but let's keep moving and we could we could treat that when we get to it All right sounds good Let's let's talk about the capture of exotic animals and I know this is this is a very broad. We're talk, we can talk fish, we could talk birds, primates. This is too big, too big to really mm-hmm. answer. But if you want to pick just a general case, something that's representative, how are these animals captured? What impact does it have on the animal? What impact does it have on the ecosystem from which the animal was taken? Yeah, um, there is a lot to say here. Um, like you said, it, it does vary depending on the species. But in general, one of the important things to note right off the bat is that capture of animals is often done in a very decentralized way. So there are not like major corporations running capture programs. So it's often, uh, at least in, so the research that I did, I'll, I'll situate it first, just so that I'm not speaking beyond what I directly studied because of the variation depending on region and species type. So I studied capture in predominantly in Mexico, but also in Guatemala and Belize in a series of biosphere reserves. And mainly what's being captured in those reserves is monkeys and parrots. And the capture is being done by individuals not working for any company. uh, And these are individuals who do not work professionally as trappers. They work doing other things in or near the forest. So they're, they work in logging or fishing or farming, say. But at the same time, capturing these animals is not totally opportunistic. They don't, I mean, it might be every once in a while, but for people who are capturing, you know, more than just an animal every decade or something, they, they have skills in capture. It's just not their main income necessarily. So how it works is an individual or a couple of guys say, and it is a a very male dominated, it's male dominated work trapping. So for parrots, the birds are trapped from their nests. And the idea is to capture birds and monkeys when they're young, because they'll get a much higher price and they are more likely to, the, the sort of common wisdom in the exotic pet trade goes that they're 
that the younger the animal, the more likely it is to bond with its owner and be more docile and companionable. So young parrots are trapped from the nests. Sometimes the trappers have to climb trees to do this. So they have a bit of climbing equipment, like a rope with them to do that. Sometimes trees are actually felled to get to the nest and the young parrots are taken a very similar story for monkeys uh, who are taken from their parents. And often in the process, uh, the parents are shot in order to capture the, the baby monkey. So this is a very traumatic an extremely traumatic event for these young animals. And I describe it in the book as an act of severing them from their kin, from their, you know, socio-ecological networks, by which I mean, like how they survive in a daily way, their habitat, their food sources, etc. And so instead, they are so they're severed from those relationships, and then instead become forcibly constrained and enclosed and and 100% dependent on human provided supports for for their bare survival, really, but and many don't survive. So it's important to note that as many as 70% of birds may die before even reaching their purchaser or, or owner. Um, so the effects for individual animals are lethal and traumatic. Uh, and then for wild, wider ecosystems, I mean, <laughs> the, the effects are devastating. So for several species like, like parrots, capture for the pet trade is actually driving these species extinction. It's a major cause of defaunation worldwide. And the problem is it's not only that these individual animals are removed, but often other animals, their kin will die in the process. So nests will be destroyed, trees are felled and habitat is lost and other parrots will die, not just the captured parrot. Um, Or as I said, relative monkeys are killed to get one monkey. And then, of course, due to the high mortality rate during and post-capture, many more animals are removed from the wild than the final sale numbers would suggest. So it, this is a major sort of animal welfare issue and a major ecological issue because there are these massive ripple effects of taking animals from their ecosystems. Right. And you you. you gestured it towards this, but not only does it scar the individual that's taken, but it scars their, if I can use this term, their parents and their, mm-hmm. the individuals, the the network of which they're a part. And who knows what type of ramifications that has, that undoubtedly destabilizes their behavior and forces them to change their behavior in ways that have consequences. We don't Absolutely. need to spend a lot of time on this because I, I, don't think that you study this in particular, but I, I am curious how the capture of fish would work because the capture of fish for for eating purposes, they use these these immense trawlers, you know, that just capture tens or hundreds of thousands of fish in a single go, and they just lift them up and they all suffocate. Um, but that wouldn't work if you need to keep them alive. So. Yeah. Do you have any idea? I mean, I know, again, I know that it's diverse, but are we talking people with fishing poles or how, how does that, how do we get to that volume in a way that keeps them alive? It's so, yeah, I, I wish I had an answer for you. I, I <laughs> my, in my PhD defense, my PhD, as I said, was about this topic. I had one external examiner who just kept asking about fish and 
it is interesting. I did not come across a single fish in my entire right. research. It's really they're circulating in different networks. Yeah. Um, I do know that a lot of fish species, ornamental fish species, do not reproduce well in captivity. So right. there are there is a high degree of wild trapping of fish that's going on. But I don't know. I wouldn't want to say anything about it because I didn't study that, like you said, and I don't actually know how it's done or who's catching them. I think that's generally true, isn't it? That, I mean, some, of course, some do reproduce, but I think it's generally true that exotic species do not reproduce especially well in captivity. Mm -hmm. And you see zoos who are trying to, you know, have individuals reproduce. You see them struggle to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. There there are some people who see more potential in exotic pet trade and wildlife trade as a kind of sustainable development tool, like these countries that are rich in biodiversity. It's a way for them to grow their economies. And you'll, you'll see sometimes mentions of this. I haven't actually seen evidence that this is the case. And it rests on the hope that you can captive breed. And there are like one of the places that is successful with captive breeding is reptiles, many species of reptiles. So you'll have like uh, ranches that are Mm -hmm. captive breeding these animals. But what, what can happen is that the, so sometimes it's legal to trade a captive bred individual, but illegal to trade a wild caught individual. But it, that, that loophole for captive bred creates an opening to traffic wild species by just a simple forgery of paperwork to designate them as captive bred. So there are concerns in the literature about creating that loophole for for the species that do reasonably well as captive breeders. There's still concern that there might be wild species being traded under that designation. Okay, so... And a somewhat somewhat related tangential idea to this this question of where things are ambiguous or where the law is perhaps a bit ill-defined, let's turn to the auction process. Could you describe for us what a typical auction looks like? Or, of course, at least the ones that you've seen, how the animals there are enrolled in what you call, quote, embodied performances of docility and controllability, end quote, and also the role that auctions play in legitimizing the exotic pet trade. Yeah, the auctions are a really fascinating site. And I feel like a a typical auction and like almost like nothing about these events is typical in a way. But most of the auctions that I went to, uh, four out of the five, are actually run as farmed animal auctions year-round, or one of them uh, specialized in horses. But, you know, once every few months, a few times a year, they will do a multi-day sale in exotic animals. There was one auction that I went to in Texas, in Lampasas, that is a, a specialized exotic animal auction. But... All of these, when they do run, are multi-day events. They are organized by animal type. So several of them, for whatever reason, I didn't find out why, opened with like exotic ranch animals, like zebras. And then they'll move to petting zoo animals, like camels, uh, pet shop animals, like birds, small mammals. Uh, Sugar gliders were really popular 
at the time when I was doing my research, they're like small possums and then reptiles and monkeys, wild cats, which were in my experience, mainly servals and so on. So they, that's how they're kind of organized over two to four days. They are <laughs> extremely intense, like cacophonous places, like hundreds of animals are being moved through the auction space each day. And there are hundreds of people in the audience uh, and the audience at various points would become a bit more raucous uh, if there was a, a rare animal, for example, or something funny, quote unquote, funny happened on stage. Is this, is this another Noah's Ark situation where there's conceivably hundreds, <laughs> yes. hundreds, thousands of different species in the same building at the same time? Yes. Okay. And so it's very noisy and it's funny. Noah's Ark, I mean, it was meant like many of the auction posters would, would explicitly say like, we've got Noah's Ark (laughs) for sale. Um, So the auctions actually really emphasized the diversity of animals that they would have for sale. Um, But it was a very overwhelming space to do research in. I I won't get too personal about it, but it was, I had this kind of enduring fear of being called out as a spy. And it was a really charged atmosphere, partly because as you sort of alluded to, the auction space is in some states, some of the animals being bought and sold existed in a kind of not a legal gray zone as much as a shifting legal terrain. So a lot of states and provinces in Canada are in the process of revise or well, <laughs> revising their laws would suggest that they have laws that pertain to exotic pets that are being changed. And actually what they're doing is creating laws that pertain to exotic pets, which for the most part exist in a real legal void at the state and pr- provincial level. So as a result of some spectacular cases of people being killed by their exotic pets um, and things like this, a lot of places are creating laws. And so the there is a lot of suspicion at these auctions about undercover animal rights activists, a lot of antagonism towards animal rights, and a lot of, I wouldn't say fear, a lot of resistance to any of these impending laws. So actually, I'll answer your last question first and say that one of the things that I became interested in my, one of my questions was, you know, why are auctions such a popular place to buy and sell these animals in the first place? And after observing at several of these auctions and reading some theory on auctions, I realized that the auctions were performing this legitimizing function. So not only are they places where hundreds and thousands of people can gather and share political resources, sign petitions, hand out bumper stickers and promo materials against animal rights activists and pro-animal ownership. There was also speeches made at these auctions about the need to fight impending animal welfare laws and these sorts of things. So that was going on. And then also there is something about the role of auctions as collectively legitimizing the the commodity status of the thing being bought and sold. And so auctions often are popular when it comes to commodities that have uncertain value or are sort of in flux. Their status is in flux as commodities. They may become illegal. So I think auctions were having this important role in in my observations. So performing the transaction 
by default makes it legal. I, I don't mean that it makes it, you know, legal in terms of the Supreme Court or what have you, but yes. the, the performance of the transaction makes that something real that happens that's an established precedent. It reaffirms the commodity status publicly, collectively. Yeah. And the it is a true spectacle too. Like this the these auctions were very lively places, quite celebratory, sort of fun for people to attend. They bring their families and the animals in terms of their the sort of embodied performances of the animals on the on the auction stage, animals were often enrolled in different sort of spectacles. So camels would be ridden on or bottle fed, tarantulas would be held up in in a palm and paraded around, or animals would be cuddled, servals would be walked back and forth on their leash. And I I also observed after, you know, dozens, hundreds of hours of observation that a lot of these performances, they were about performing the commodity status of the animal, as we just talked about. They were also about performing animals' companionability. And for exotic pets, a huge part of that, as I said, is their controllability, their docility, their uh, ability to you know, sleep on a bed with an owner or be pet without biting or you know, these sorts of things. And there was one really clear example that I can share that emphasized that when an animal could perform or an animal was talked about as docile and controllable, it sold for more than an, than an animal that didn't. So there were, was one point, there were two monitor lizards for sale, both male, uh, identical to look at and identical in terms of what was reported about them because the performance involves often the the seller saying a little bit about the animal for sale. So the owner of the exotic animal agency that was selling these monitor lizards said of the first one, oh, you know, he's tame, he'll wear a harness and so on. And he sold for $235. And the second one, she said, oh, he's less tame and he gets nerved up and he sold for $175. So not a huge difference in price here, but that was really the distinguishing quality between them was that one gets nerved up and the other can wear a harness and is tame. And sorry, what species was this? This is a, these were monitor lizards. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that you just reminded me, you, you were bringing up costs. Do you, do you know off the top of your head? If like, say, uh, I don't know, a, a cougar or some of, or, or a black bear or something like that. The numbers are in the hundreds, right? Maybe low thousands. We're, we're not talking tens of thousands of dollars for may, maybe the most, no. the most exotic, but even, even if you can get a big cat for under a thousand dollars, is that correct? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it it's, uh, depends on the age, depends mm-hmm. on the gender. A lot of the time, a lot, uh, often, uh, females will sell for more because they offer the promise of future, mm-hmm. um, commodities essentially. Um, but yes, yeah, you can get a wild cat for under a thousand dollars. I was, I was just, I was floored. Okay. So that, those are the logistics, but your book also has a bunch of uh, I don't know if I want to use the word theory, but theory in, in a good way. Um, so let's drill down a bit. 
into your analysis of the underlying mechanisms of the trade. Key idea, as we've been discussing, is that pets are commodities. So a commodity is a raw material. I think I took this from Wikipedia. A commodity is a raw (laughs) material or primary agricultural product that can be bought and sold, such as copper or coffee, or animals. This is, of course, one of the central ideas in animal rights, despite the fact that in certain privileged encounters, we treat animals as if they are, in your words, quote, lively subjects who engage in their own world-making practices, end quote. For the most part, animals are treated as things to be bought and sold and discarded as needed. They are legally classified as property. We kill them at will for food and clothing. We enlist them for our amusement and entertainment. We keep them captive as pets. If we decide to, we can abandon our pets to shelters. We can have them euthanized. I'm going to ask you about animal fetishism shortly, but for the moment, could you describe for us the the ways in which animals are commodified and and, and just exactly how you understand that? What, what, What does that mean that they're commodified? Yeah, it's a big question because, of course, as your question suggests, there are so many ways that animals are commodified. And some animals spend their entire lives as commodities. They are born into commodity life, say, like farm animals or captive bred pets. Some become commodities on being captured. Some actually only become commodities on dying, like the fish that we were talking about being commercially harvested that Mm -hmm. are free swimming and become commodities once they're made into steaks, say fish steaks. So, but at, at the core, a commodity is just anything that can be bought and sold, anything that is exchanged in markets. What's important to me, once we get into the sort of more theoretical realm, but also this is a very political thing, is that is the default assumption that animals are commodifiable, right? So that in the absence of any laws that state otherwise, animals are eligible to be commodified, to become things or thing, you know, thing like objects that can be bought and sold. And when I started my project, Uh, I was really interested centrally in commodities. I thought, well, this is the exotic pet trade is a story of the commodification of wild animal life. And I was interested in the effects of being commodified. So how does it, how, what are the effects of commodification for the animals that actually experience that? As I was doing the research, I realize that a lot of exotic pets or former exotic pets are not actually commodities anymore. They are not, they are, they say like here in BC in British Columbia, where I live as of about 10 years ago, over a thousand different species of exotic pets are now illegal to buy and sell. And a lot of them still live in the province. They've been grandfathered in, but people and people own them or they live in sanctuaries, uh, but they can't be bought and sold. But the, I'm still interested in those animals that are not commodities anymore. And for like nerdy academics like myself, it's actually really important to be specific about what is and what isn't a commodity. And I became especially interested in how animals can be enrolled in capitalist value generation, capitalist production, capitalist activities, even if they're not commodities. So one really clear example of this is the wild animals that are viewed for ecotourism. So those animals are not themselves commodities, but without those animals, 
the eco tours would falter, money wouldn't be made, people would lose their jobs. So these non-commodified animals are still crucial to the value generating capabilities of the ecotourism industry. And it's similar for zoos. If any certified zoo today is not legally, technically allowed to buy and sell their animals. So their animals are not strictly speaking commodities, but they perform this value generating function. So that's something that's something I've become more interested in over the course of the book, which is why the book is called Lively Capital in the Exotic Pet Trade and not Lively Commodities, because I became interested in a broader sort of category of animals that are active in capitalist economies or instrumental to capitalist economies, even if they're not commodified. And then the other important piece of that being that those uncommodified animals might still experience a lot of the negative effects of captivity, say, even if they're not commodities. Right. Which brings us to my next question. I I believe, I could be mistaken, but I I believe that you you were led to thinking in this direction I'm about to bring up, when you were pondering the ways in which animals who had been decommodified still had you you noticed that they were not wildlife there was there was a difference between they weren't technically commodities but they weren't wildlife either mm-hmm. and again i i could be you you it may have been a different train of thought that led you to this i know that part of it is it has to do with the process of commodification but that said let's talk briefly about animal fetishism you developed this concept to explain the process by which living things become thing-like, become commodities. So what is animal fetishism? I suppose, what is fetishism? And how is it enacted? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Just to <laughs> say you're, you're right about my thought process. Fetishism is most commonly associated, at least in my world of economic geography, with the idea of commodity fetishism from Karl Marx, which is essentially the idea that commodities are viewed as if they have lives of their own, when in fact they were produced through very uneven and exploitative labor relations. And so I was working in the early part of the project with that kind of stricter Marxist version of fetishism and thinking about, okay, so animals are commodified and they are abstracted from the labor that produced them. But I thought, wow, but it's not just human labor that's producing them. It's their own labor. It's the labor of their kin and their ecologies. So so I'm sorry, do you mind if I just interrupt quickly? So an example, a a classic example of a fetishistic, a, a commodity fetishistic object. Sorry, I don't, this isn't really my wheelhouse, so I don't have the language, but would be say an iPhone or a brand new pair of really dope Nike sneakers, something like that. And so the, what makes it a a fetishistic item is that it, it becomes this almost, this almost sacred object and the, the labor conditions and the economics behind that object are concealed by the marketing and the and the design is that kind of is that kind of the gist 
Yeah, I think that's the more popular understanding okay. for sure. And it's not wrong. Okay. Um, for Marx, there was a more, even more a sort of deeper angle that just by virtue of exchanging commodities for each other, they appear to be in this equivalent. So you say these Nike shoes are worth a hundred t-shirts or, you know, $200 or whatever dollars being the commodity that you're exchanging the Nike shoes for. So they appear like the, the value of the thing appears to be it's in its equivalent commodity. And Mark says the value is actually produced by the labor. Mm-hmm. And that right. that is what disappears through the act of exchange itself. In the act of exchange, a commodity starts to achieve or sort of acquire these magical properties of seeming like it has a life of its own. And rather than its its value having been produced by the labor of people in, in Indonesia, say. Um, yeah, so that's... That's the, and then, but it, for me, it was actually a turning point when I turned to more like feminist and post-colonial scholarship, like Donna Haraway, um, but especially Sarah Ahmed, who argue more broadly that fetishism is to mistake a social process for a thing. And that's all, what Marx is also saying. Like the social process of labor is mistaken for the commodity object. And so I thought, well, there's two different kinds of fetishism going on with commodified wild animals and the exotic pet trade. They are fetishized as commodities. And we, when they're purchased in the pet shop, you don't see the work of the trapper say, but they are also fetishized as animals, as objects that are seen as not having lives of their own. So I thought all from the beginning of the project, I was thinking, okay, so Mark says, commodities appear as if they have lives of their own. And then I would be like, but there are commodities that do have lives of their own. And actually those lively commodities appear through a different fetishistic process as if they don't have lives of their Mm -hmm. own, as if they are object, object or things. And so I thought, okay, well, animal fetishism is if, so Sarah Ahmed describes fetishism as a, a failure to account for conditions of arrival, like a a radical forgetting of the histories of labor and production that allow an object to appear as if it is a simple object. And so I thought, okay, well, animal fetishism is a radical forgetting of an animal's complex histories of its own being, like a cutting off of the animal from those histories. And this is, it operates not by conjuring a life of its own for something that's actually made by laborers, but instead denying a life of its own to something that is produced through its own and other more than human labors. So what's erased is actually the sort of socio-ecological reproductive relationships and networks that produce animals as living social beings in the first place. And the animal fetishism is accomplished or enacted I argue in in two main ways. And one is enclosure. So capturing an animal, this one-time act of dramatic severing of the animal from its kin networks, dispossessing animals of their kin, of their kind of capacity to be world-making autonomous subjects, capture and enclosure sort of are the first way that animals come to appear as if they don't have 
lives of their own. They're made individual and alienated, and they appear alone, unable to provide for themselves. And then the second way is a bit more discursive, like uh, in the realm of meaning making. And it's the assumption that animals do not have their own use values for each other, that they their use values are, are framed in a very anthropocentric way, that the usefulness of an animal is, lies above all else in its relation to human owners, like, and in this case, as companions. So at the auction, I mean, this is a bit of an obvious point, but at the auction over and over again, the use values that were invoked about these animals were like its companion ability. It will talk to you. It will, you know, be fun for you, this and that. And there was, you know, of course there is nothing about animals capacities to provide for each other or themselves or their communities. Right. So in terms of the, the, just a classic example of the former would be the, the, say the monkey appears at the auction and it's, it's capture, it's severing from its family. It's uh, perhaps it was transported in a box. Perhaps it was shackled. I I don't know. Um, But uh, an example of the latter, I think is, just uh, you could say at a, at a pet store or even even at like if you're adopting you know if you're adopting a rescue pet and you and you just take it <laughs> you we have my wife and I have two uh rescue gerbils and they were taken away you know they when we got there there was a whole litter of them and you just take them away from their siblings and it's it's just that it 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 doesn't even become you don't even factor that into your consideration um, yeah. yeah so I think it's an incredibly interesting point, and I do I do think that that erasure of the of the whole of their essentially of their lives mm-hmm. and the, and the networks that they came from and the ecosystems that they live in the complete erasure of that and they just become an object for humans is incredibly important and I, and I think that your your concept of animal fetishism really beautifully helps us understand that. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> in your third chapter, Crafting the Unencounterable Animal, you turn to wildlife rehabilitation facilities. In your book, you describe the process of making exotic animals thing-like as a series of, quote, entanglements and disentanglements that represent a realignment or a rearrangement of the relations and terrain of life for captured animals, a shifting of the relations that constitute the animal, end quote. That sounds like a lot when I say it, but when (laughs) when you read the book, it makes sense. Essentially, the animal needs to be severed from the entanglements that it had in its natural habitat and then incorporated into a a new set of human entanglements. So the process of wildlife rehabilitation, as I understand it, is ideally the opposite of that. You disentangle the animals from their human entanglements and then attempt to rehabilitate them into into entanglements similar to ones of where they came from that will hopefully they can get used to and survive if, if and when they're released. So could you talk us through this and explain the methods rehabilitation facilities use in the attempt to rehabilitate captured animals back into the wild. Yeah, you're you got it right. The the overarching idea of rehabilitation 
is that there's an aspirational reversal of the shifting in relations that made the commodity in the first place. So rehabilitation is uh, one way of looking at it is as decommodification, an attempt to disentangle animals from human dependencies and supports and re-entangle them with their wild kin networks and socioecologies beyond the cage. The reason I say aspirational is because this sounds really good, but in practice, it's, it's very paradoxical and it takes for many species years to accomplish. And after all that time, it is often unsuccessful. So animals are either not released because they haven't demonstrated the required characteristics that would suggest that they can survive in the wild or they are released and they die quickly. So the paradoxical part, and to start getting into the sort of nitty gritty of how wildlife rehabilitation works, and this is based on my experience conducting research at a place called Arcus in Guatemala, which rehabilitates former exotic pets and also other wild animals. The paradox is like the idea that the animals, the attempt is to make animals unencounterable to humans, to release them back into the wild and to prepare them to be unencounterable to humans so that they will be less likely to be recommodified, recaptured or killed by humans. And this is done by instilling fear in animals of humans and trying to build their capacity to be autonomous outside their cage. So what's paradoxical is that making animals unencounterable is done entirely through very prolonged and tactile encounters with humans at the wildlife center. So there's a real limiting factor to rehabilitation. Animals at the center are undeniably dependent on the rehabilitators, and yet the rehabilitators are trying to build independence. So one of the best ways to describe this is to talk about monkeys, because the rehabilitation process for them is especially prolonged. And I worked very closely with monkeys while I was doing research at Arcus. And rehabilitation for primates is, I I imagine, I don't want to anthropomorphize, but it would be very confusing for them because a lot of them arrive as babies because they've been captured, because that's the desirable age for them to be captured, or they've been orphaned and they might turn up at the center for that reason. Someone has brought them in. They come in as babies and they're nurtured by a surrogate human parent at the center because they they need, at that age, contact. They spend a lot of time with their human surrogate who feeds them with you know a bottle at first, even, depending on their age. And then they're moved to a smaller cage uh, and a troop. And the human contact starts to withdraw. And they just, they're still fed by, you know, by humans, of course, but there's not as much human contact. And then they move to a slightly larger cage once they're juveniles. And at this point, this kind of intense, misanthropic, dehumanizing process begins where if they come close to their, to their rehabilitators, they're sprayed, they're shouted at, they're not supposed to come down to the floor, they're not supposed to approach the humans. And then eventually they're moved to a larger enclosure that's actually uh, got lots of vegetation and it has electric fences and blanks are shot at the monkeys like to try to sort of finalize this message, like stay away from humans. So it was a very (laughs) bizarre 
kind of process to be involved with, like to feel like you're almost abusing these animals as you spray them and shout at them. They've been raised by a surrogate human parent, and now they're being, you know, um, treated so poorly, and you're still feeding them. It's just, it's very paradoxical, right? And one of the other aspects of, of rehabilitation that's interesting to me, and that I think is deserving of a conversation among rehabilitators who rehabilitators are very aware of these paradoxes and these limits of rehabilitation. But there is this this sense that when you, if you go to a rehab center, a lot of the time they'll say like our priority is animals freedom. We want them to be able to live out in the wild. But actually when you dig into it, what's prioritized above that is life, like keeping the animal alive. And so what this means is that if monkeys don't stay away from humans, if they don't shy away, if they don't shrink away when you spray them, if they touch you, they won't be released. Like they'll be kept at the center in a separate section where they can be visited by, by tourists and things. So there is this sort of life above all else, life above autonomy, life more than, than wildness. And I'm, I'm just sort of skeptical of, of that in some ways because it does mean that a lot of the animals don't end up getting released. Parrots are another example. If they, if they can speak, they will not be released. The idea being that, that human speech will interrupt their wild communication somehow. It's, it's one of those themes that comes up a lot these days. Another is the, you know, the individual versus the species, how to balance the trade-off between protecting one or the other. Mm-hmm. I, 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 of course, have no simple answers. I will say that I, I have no idea if that form of rehabilitation works. It's, it's heartbreaking on the flip side, of course, the last thing you want is to release an individual, have them see a poacher in the distance and, and run up to them. Mm-hmm. So my, my heart breaks and my heart goes out to the people that are trying to help. And, and I hope that we, we keep working on this and, and we make progress into figuring out, does this work? Are there other ways that we can do this? It is, yeah. oh, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. For um, me, I, I can't help but keep, and I, I have the luxury <laughs> as an academic of not having to be practical <laughs> all the time, but I can't help but come back in when I think about rehabilitation to the idea of like, we just need to ensure that as few animals as possible end up in that situation where humans are making choices for them about life and death, freedom or captivity, you know, like, so really in the book, in the end, I, I pose some questions for rehabilitators to think about, but my, my main sort of ultimate argument is that, that they shouldn't be ending up at Arcus in the first place, that we need to reduce demand for exotic pets. So we need to shrink the market so that fewer and fewer animals are ending up in, in these rehab centers where, where they're, choices are so limited and the choices being made on their behalf are even so limited as you point out. Right. I, I think that my, my next question is my last question. It concerns your, your vision for the future, your politics of wildlife. And I think maybe you can touch on it there, but of course this question of 
addressing the demand is crucial. So if you think that this is a better place and you just wanted to expand on that a little bit, or maybe what you've said is sufficient, it goes without saying that as long as the demand remains, these individuals will be in danger. The source of the problem, the final, you know, the ultimate source, I, I can never remember those Aristotelian differences, but the ultimate source of the problem arises from the demand. So we have to address the demand. Yeah. And once the demand vanishes, the, the problem will eventually vanish. So if there's anything else you want to say, or we could just move on to the next question. Well, I will just quickly say that it's widely acknowledged that the exotic pet trade and wildlife trade more generally are highly demand-driven economies. Trade flows, trade amounts, what's traded, it varies in relation to demand. And there's lots of examples of this, but what's out of, like, so that's widely acknowledged. And yet exotic pet trade and wildlife trade are almost entirely managed and in, and enforced and attempted to be controlled by, by supply. So it's trappers who are criminalized, uh, for example, not as often the sort or, or education campaigns are done in supply regions and not demand regions. Very little funding for wildlife conservation as it pertains to wildlife trade is spent on demand and international regulation related to wildlife trade has only recently started to acknowledge the importance of demand management and countries like the, like the US and other develop, developed countries that are the sources of demand are very adept at sort of sidestepping those obligations. And even the U.S. said, okay, sure, we'll do some demand management. And then they started doing it in other countries, not in in the U.S. So I do think it's a really crucial area for for work um, on the demand side in the places where demand is highest. I I, I wonder, are there counter examples to that where the U.S., focuses on demand. I mean, certainly mm. the, the quote unquote war on drugs is, is a supply focused oh. war. It, that seems to be our, just our, our MO is to focus on, to try to, you know, to, to go to war against the supply and to ignore the demand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it is. And, and in a lot of ways, it's a, it's an example of a wider phenomenon of, of wealthy nations, not, wanting to touch consumption. Right. Yeah. Within environmental politics, this is a much bigger issue for sure. Oh, okay. Well, that is <laughs> that is certainly for a different discussion. Um, yeah. <laughs> in, in your final chapter, you present a vision for the future, a, a politics of wildlife. Earlier in the book, you had written, quote, think of the adage loved by animal advocates that if slaughterhouses had glass walls, the whole world would be vegetarian. This assumption is based on the idea that defetishizing the commodity is enough. Showing the violent relations underpinning meat or exotic pet production is enough. But what if those violent relations involve beings who are already devalued, who appear as things? It does not matter if walls are glass and violence is exposed if the thing being violated is not considered a being with a life of its own. The ultimate aim of this book is to challenge this notion, to suggest that animals like Darwin, that was, uh, I believe that was a, what species was Darwin? Uh, A Japanese macaque. To suggest that animals like Darwin, Japanese macaque, do have lives of their own 
and that this should be the basis of a political response to the exotic pet trade, as well as the reordering of life on Earth, of which it is a part, end quote. So in your final chapter, you present your proposal as to how to bring about this political response and reordering of life. No small order, but it is many of the books, many of the authors that I've been discussing to do this. And it is important to do this because if no one does this, we won't go anywhere. We're trying to envision a different world. So this is perhaps the most important chapter of your book. Could you tell us what you envision this looking like? How, what can we do? What can we change uh, to make better people of ourselves and to make this world a better place? Yeah, it's a, a very sort of far-reaching chapter, very aspirational in some ways, this kind of vision for, for a wildlife politics. And it comes out of an attempt to dismantle animal fetishism, right? So if animal fetishism is the process by which animals are come to be seen as if they don't have lives of their own, how do we sort of dismantle or resist that. And I suggest that it's through kind of wildlife politics where wildlife, I think it's important to define what I mean by wildness and wildlife. I suggest that it's to live in conditions of relational autonomy. And so I don't mean autonomy in the sort of individualized sense that you're independent and you have, you know, you're just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, straps, rugged individualist kind of, I don't mean that vision of autonomy. I mean a more kind of feminist inflected idea of autonomy where the auto or the one self of autonomy is constituted by many. So autonomy, relational autonomy specifically is actually the ability to have a shared collective existence with a degree of control over one's life circumstances and the ability to work, to play, to care for oneself and others, to craft one's own future, and maybe in the biggest sense to be world-making subjects, as I described, sort of make one's make up one's own world in conjunction with with others. And this is a, a kind of life where the light where one's the animal's life belongs to itself and its community and not to an owner. And I argue that or suggest that there are kind of two conditions needed for wildlife. One is is very spatial. One an animal needs space to be able to enact this kind of life. Um, and so part of wildlife politics to me is a politics against the cage, a politics of against enclosure and captivity. And then the other piece is a recognition of animals' own use values, that animals have functions and desires and will in relation to themselves and their communities, and they have usefulness to each other. So that's kind of this general sketch of what wildlife politics means. And then again, like partly because I had an excellent comment from a reviewer that said, these are very, you know, far reaching goals. Like, can you suggest a more intermediate step? And that's where demand reduction comes in. That's the more practical path that I see towards shrinking these markets so that fewer animals end up living these lives that are not their own. 
these lives that belong to an owner, that are lived in a cage, that are lived producing usefulness for, for a human owner and not for their communities. It's, uh, on the one hand, because of the world that we live in, it, it sounds aspirational, but really <laughs> what you're proposing is, is just a world where animals to some degree can live lives of their own, which yeah. isn't such a radical proposal. I mean, we're of course, we're used to them being our property and we do what we will with them. Like I said, I mean, even our pets, we can euthanize them as almost as we desire, but um, mm-hmm. it isn't such a radical proposal. We share this planet with other fellow creatures. They have minds of their own. Science has shown us that they have intelligence, they have emotions, they have families that they care about. And treating them with dignity is not too much to ask. <laughs> it's um, so true. It's actually a very simple conclusion, but it it runs up against so many entrenched political economic structures, like the structure of property, like you mm-hmm. talked about, and it runs up against a still widely held anthropocentric understanding of, of life on earth, which is despite all the science that shows that animals have emotions and have will, we still in the mainstream, I think in many parts of the world still consider humans to be superior and masterful over the rest of life on earth. Absolutely. It runs into our dominionist view of humanity, but I'm I'm going to be speaking to the philosopher Peter Singer soon. Oh. So I've just been reading his new book, which is really, it's an anthology of some important essays and chapters he's written. And he brings up two additional points that make this especially difficult. One is that the individuals we're trying to defend cannot speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the second point he brings up is that almost everyone has a personal stake in this matter which is that they eat meat, they wear animal products, so they have a personal investment in not seeing the moral dimensions of this argument. So even though it, it, your proposal is not really asking very much at all, it, without question, there is an in, enormous hurdle. There is, uh, there's a mountain ahead that we have to climb, but, but your book is part, of, is part of the way there. I'm pleased that the humanities are turning, I, I guess it's called the animal turn or, or, or mm-hmm. but I, I'm pleased that the, that the humanities are now taking up in this one, one great thing that I think has, has come out of the Trump years is that there seems to be an, a growing alliance between the arts and the sciences that, that mm-hmm. I think was there less four years ago, mm-hmm. but now both sides are kind of seeing that that they do have things in common and that there is overlap and it would be beneficial for them to speak more to one another and to work cl- more closely together. Ah, that's so interesting. I, I, I can see that. And I'm, that also makes me hopeful. Rosemary, thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time. You've been very generous with your time to wrap up. Could I just ask, is there anything that you are working on now that you'd be willing to share with us? Sure. Actually, um, to spin off of your your observation that the sciences and the arts are are not <laughs> as are not so antagonistic these days, 
my new work it works a bit more closely from the science. So I'm actually shifting from a focus on over-exploitation of wild animals through the exotic pet trade to the other main driver of extinction globally, which is land use change. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a kind of paradox that it's my, I'm working with Jessica Dempsey, my collaborator, she's at UBC. And we're the, the starting point of our research is this paradox where on the one hand, the last 40 years have seen the emergence of what are called environmental states, like, you know, over a thousand pieces of uh, national level endangered species related legislation have been passed over the last 40 years. Environmental laws have increased over 30 fold in that time period. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, all of the trends of extinction and defaunation, almost all species have only worsened over that period of time. So how do we explain that? And that states, these environmental states are committed to recovery, but they still authorize and benefit from all of the activities that are driving the land use change that's causing extinction and defaunation. So we're looking at woodland caribou in Canada, which is a a species that perfectly embodies this paradox. Woodland caribou are classified as endangered in Canada. They are a key species for First Nations, a treaty protected species, and yet they're on a crash course to extinction in this country. And both provincial and federal level, we're, we're studying what, why the state states continue to justify and authorize extraction in caribou habitat, endangered caribou habitat, and then also who is benefiting from caribou extinction? What are the financial flows being generated by those extractive developments? And so far, we're finding out that despite its commitments to caribou recovery, Unsurprisingly, the Canadian and provincial governments continue to authorize almost all extractive developments, and many of those developments are not producing the benefits like jobs and taxation that they promise that they will in their assessment processes. So in some ways, I think the Herb Hammond is this kind of local eco-forester here in BC who talked about how we have to do the painful elaboration of the obvious, and this, that's kind of the, the MO of this project is uh, providing the nitty-gritty evidence for why this paradox exists. Fascinating. I (laughs) look forward to reading that. Perhaps we could speak again when that comes out. That would be lovely. Rosemary, your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure for me too. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Rosemary Claire Collard about her book, Animal Traffic, Lively Capital in the Global Exotic Pet Trade. It's an erudite work, passionate and fascinating one, and an important one. I hope that you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.